they say that we Americans love a good story. As a matter of fact, they, they tell us we're addicted to good stories. And Hollywood banks on this, literally, to the tune of about $12.5 a year. They keep telling us more and more stories, and we keep going. Plus, we're buying the Coke and popcorn as well. We love a great story. I read an article about a month ago. It kind of inspired me. A Hollywood director said that the resurrection story, the Easter story is good, but he can make it great. Uh, it says that the, the, the primary character in the story, Jesus, needs a little bit more pizzazz. And uh, Jesus in Hollywood would come to the guy who's lame or the guy who's blind, and he would say, have no fear, Jesus is here. And there'd be a lot more dramatic fashion than we see in the resurrection or the crucifixion story. As a matter of fact, he said that he would have the disciples expecting a resurrection. So they would all kind of gather out around the grave or the, the tomb, and they'd kind of begin to chant and shake their hands a little bit and do a little dance, uh, kind of emulating what Jesus did, or in the Hollywood producer's mind, what Jesus should have done when he raised Lazarus from the dead, and just kind of come out and just shake and rattle, you know, and just say, come forth. And then, of course, Jesus would come forth, but not after a long countdown. They'd be like, you know, 10, 9, 8, and then maybe... Maybe the earth begins to shake, seven, six, five, and maybe the seal around the tomb is broken, and four, three, two, the stone then is rolled away. One, out pops Jesus, and there's somebody in the crowd with the John 3, 16 sign, and somebody says, you demand Jesus. He says, that's the way you would do it in Hollywood. The problem is, if you've read the resurrection story, or the crucifixion story, you know it doesn't quite happen like that. In fact, Jesus' disciples are not in any way expecting a resurrection. They go back and they hide away. I guess they're feeling that, hey, uh, you know, if the Romans killed our leader, how safe are we? And if you read the story, the disciples' hopeful illusions all die with Jesus on the cross. Let me say that again. The disciples' hopeful illusions all die with Jesus on the cross. I want to talk to you just about illusion or maybe disillusions. Let's start with marketers depend on us to be stupid. You know that, right? They paint illusions for us that we believe, and then when we're disillusioned, they bring forth another illusion, and that's how they just keep us tied. I've got some products here on stage that are quite ridiculous. Let me just start out with one that's too close to home, Rogaine. <laughs> I can tell you from experience, this does not work. I started losing my hair in my mid twenties. I used to have a full, nice black head of hair. And other than my mom pulling my hair out, it's called male pattern baldness, and this does not help. But according to the package, man, I'm supposed to rub this on my head and I mean, just get new hair, right? How vulnerable or gullible do you have to be? This has cost a lot of money too, I know. I've got another product here. Where is it here? Oh, I love this one. Here's a product that claims to eliminate odors for over two years. This is obvious for people who don't have pets or teenagers. You can't eliminate odors for two years, but here, under, for under 10 bucks, I think, Two years, no more odor in your house. Here's my favorite one, though. For under $10, you too can have something that will amplify your hearing up to 30 times. See, now this is bad marketing because the first thing that they don't understand is that as we get older, we actually don't want to hear more. We've already heard it all and we're not impressed. So we actually want to turn the dial down. But to actually believe that for under 10 bucks that you can have a, a hearing aid that magnifies sound 30 times. 
Surely we're not going to believe that. This is the illusion that marketers create. Let me sell you on one illusion. When you realize it doesn't deliver, I'll move you on to another, and we just keep churning out money, and they keep churning out products. As a matter of fact, let me go back to this hair thing for a moment. This is the first product I tried when I was in my early 20s, called New Generation. Does anybody remember that one? They promised us, see, you're not even willing to admit it. You're in church, and you can't admit it. They told us that you rub this on your head and use it as a shampoo and conditioner, you're going to stop losing your hair and you might even gain more. Now, the problem with new generation was, is that even though you were hopeful that something good would happen, it made your hair that you already had look really bad and oily. So not only did I wear this for like four or five years, I didn't gain any new hair and the hair I did have looked really, really bad. So every day was a bad hair day. So I moved to the next one, which was Rogaine. And you believe that it's going to help. It doesn't help. And here's my favorite. You move to the third one, Propecia. Now here's the good thing about this. You might get more hair, but you'll have a heart attack on the way. <laughs> the only thing these products did for me is make my hair more wavy. I noticed my hair got more wavy. You know why? It was waving bye-bye. I want to talk to you about illusion. Here's how I'm defining illusion. It is a false or misleading impression of reality. The Easter story, above and beyond, I believe anything else, is about Jesus coming into the world and destroying two major illusions that the people of his time had. Now remember what an illusion is. An illusion is a false sense of reality. In order for that to change, you have to experience disillusionment. That is, that the things you thought to be true all of your life all of a sudden become untrue. That brings sadness. Disillusionment is actually the death of illusion. That's what it means. But until you have an illusion that dies and becomes a disillusion, which brings sadness, you can't experience hope and new life. So Jesus comes into the world, and as he comes in, and he's going to give his life on the cross, and there's going to be a resurrection. It's going to be very difficult for the people around him to believe it because he's living in a time when there are two primary illusions. The first one is this. Messiahs don't die. They don't die. If you're the Messiah, you can never be defeated by the Romans, especially crucified on a cross. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree, the Bible says. So the Messiah is kind of like Superman without the kryptonite. Messiahs don't die. So Jesus, first of all, is going to have to destroy that illusion. Now, let me show you how deep this runs by taking a look at one segment of the Easter story. Now, you remember there's a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He's a wealthy man. He comes to Pilate, and later he comes on uh, uh, to the Roman leaders, and he says, I would like to have the body of Jesus, and I want to take care of it. As a matter of fact, it goes like this in verse 52 of chapter 23 in the book of Luke. Going to Pilate. It just simply says he asked for Jesus' body. Now stay with me for a moment. Joseph of Arimathea would have been like a lot of other Jewish followers of Jesus in his time. He, picture him as kind of like a detective with a notepad. And he's following Jesus around. And he says, you know, dude, this guy's got power. The lame walk, the blind see. He caused Lazarus to rise from the dead. This is the one. This is the Messiah. This is the king. He's the one that's going to overtake Roman rule, and we're going to be in charge again. In this room right now, there's none of us that can really comprehend the devastation that Joseph of Arimathea, and he's called that because he's from Arimathea, would have experienced when he saw Jesus hanging on the tree and when he saw Jesus die. All of a sudden, this illusion that Messiahs don't die, 
He's got to deal with the tension. He thought Jesus was the one. Who else could be the one? Who else could do this? And yet Jesus has died. So he goes to Pilate. He's probably confused at this point. And he says, I'd like to have the, or he goes to the, uh, the leaders, Roman leaders, let me have the body. We're going to take it. We're going to bury it. And he brings some of his buddies along. Now, just quickly, just so you understand what's happening. Four things you need to know about proper burial in the first century Palestine. Four basic steps happen. One, you take the body of Jesus and you wash it because of all the blood, guts, and gore of a scourging and a crucifixion. Two, you anoint the body with fragrances. Three, you wrap the body in cloth, which had been saturated with oils, so there'd be a sweet smell to it. You don't want to repeat what happened in John 11. Remember what happened when Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? They said what? Behold, he's been dead for four days. The body stinketh. (laughs) The body stinks. So they wrapped Jesus' body in oils. And step four, they would place the body of Jesus in the tomb. Now, the problem with all of this is Jesus' death was incredibly inconvenient because it took place near the Sabbath. So the sun is going down. And when the sun goes down and the Sabbath begins, you're not allowed to do any work. So Joseph and his buddies knew we don't have time to do all this. And you know what's happening next, right? These men get together and they just put something together and put Jesus on the concrete slab in the tomb. So they probably covered him with some white cloth, grab some duct tape, wrap it around him, place him in the tomb and get back to the festivities. You say, what festivities? Well, in the story of the resurrection, we're told that it was preparation day, which means everything you've got to do before the Sabbath happens, you do. So time is running out. Now, later on in the story, the women are going to learn about what happened here. They're going to discover these guys have made a mess. Now, even though women usually have greater intuition, they too are living disillusion. Messiahs don't die. So they're thinking to themselves, okay, he's not the one we thought he was, but still he was a decent teacher and a decent man, so we at least need to go give him a proper burial. Now, quickly, this is how the tomb worked. It was a cave above ground, and there would be uh, this slot in which a large stone would be placed kind of in the shape of a wagon wheel, and you would pull it back through this slot, and then you would wedge it into place with another rock. Then you would uh, do all the things that you needed to do to the body for proper preparation, put the body of Jesus inside the tomb on a concrete slab that was elevated above the floor. Then you would remove the wedge and the stone would be rolled back. Then you would seal the tomb. In this case, we know that happened because some of the uh, Jewish leaders requested that the Roman authorities seal this tomb and put Roman guards in front of it. They were afraid the disciples might do something with the body and then claim something miraculous. Now, if you were a Roman soldier and you were given the duty to guard the tomb and something happened to the body, then you would pay for your mistake with your life. So it was a very serious job. The women hear that the men have done a horrible job as far as preparing Jesus' body. They've done great disrespect. They hear about it, so they decide to wait the Sabbath out and then to prepare spices and bring them to the tomb and do this thing right. And I just find that incredibly comforting to know that after 2,000 years, nothing has changed. Women are still trying to undo what men have done. And so the women come to the tomb. Here's how we pick up the story in the next chapter. The Bible says on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the Greek refers to as soon as you see the sun, sunlight. As soon as they saw sunlight, Sabbath was over. The women took the spices they had prepared and they they went to the tomb. They're going to fix what the men did, all right? They found the stone rolled away, verse 2, from the tomb. Now, in the original text, it doesn't say it was rolled away. I mean, that's, a, that's an accurate translation, but it's more like not the stone was rolled back up into the, the crevice there and wedged again. 
it says that the stone was actually picked up and thrown away. Okay, so you imagine this huge, heavy stone. When they got to the tomb, it wasn't just rolled back up and wedged back up in a nice, tidy little manner. It was thrown away. It was rolled away, away from the wedge, away from the tomb, as if somebody just picked it up with great strength and threw it over into the forest, into the woods. Then the Bible says, but when they entered, that is the women, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, now I like this because of this, it didn't even cross their mind there was a resurrection. Doesn't even, doesn't even enter into their thinking. Number one, illusion, messiahs don't die. Number two, if they die, they don't rise again because they were imposters. So here's Mary, Martha, the women looking at the tomb. They're mesmerized by it. Nobody says, oh my goodness, it's a resurrection. He's back. Let's go find Jesus. They just stand there staring at the empty tomb, loaded down with spices. You can probably hear Mary say to Martha, are we even at the right tomb? Pass me that map. And then all of a sudden, the Bible says two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Now the answer would be because we thought he was dead. And usually when somebody's dead, they stay dead. They don't get up. So we came looking because we thought Jesus was dead and that he would be here and we could do the work that we came to do. But then the messengers of God state it more clearly and directly. They say, he's not here. <laughs> really? <laughs> he is risen. Ladies, wake up. Let me spell it out for you. J-E-S-U-S -S has R-I-S-E-N. Jesus has risen. That's why there's nobody here. And that's why it looks like somebody picked up the stone and threw it over there because somebody did pick up the stone and threw it over there. He's not here. He go bye-bye. <laughs> He's gone walkabout. He's not here. And the Bible tells us finally that their eyes were open. And suddenly this illusion has been exposed. It's been killed. Messiahs do die, but they come back again. Now, notice what happens when the ladies go to tell the disciples. What do you think is going to happen here? The disciples say, according to the uh, text, that they didn't believe the women because the the words of the women seem like nonsense. Now, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what's happening here. It might be that they were so excited they were talking so fast they weren't making any sense. Has that ever happened? Or it could be, it could be the disciples just, this is the farthest thing from their mind. Don't you find that incredible? If you read the New Testament account, Jesus spoke metaphorically numerous times. You know, if you tear down the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Other times, though, he was direct. The Son of Man will be delivered up to the hands of evil men. He will be crucified, but he will rise again on the third day. I mean, that's pretty direct right there. But the disciples, aren't even, they're not even thinking in those categories. So to them, this whole thing is nonsensical that Jesus would rise from the dead. However, Peter got a little excited. Here's what happened. It says, he got up and he ran to the tomb. Now, in the other gospel accounts, we're told that somebody else ran to the tomb. Who was it? Anybody know? Who ran to the tomb with, John, with Peter? Now everybody's going to look smart. John, who got there first? John, how do we know that? Because only one gospel writer records that. Guess who it is? John. So it's kind of like Peter and I ran to the tomb, but I got there first. Bending over, this is Peter, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. The Greek word is blepo. It means to process. Now the question is, stay with me. We're about to round third already. Why is Peter having such a difficult time? Because he's living, like everybody else, under two illusions. Number one, messiahs don't die. But number two, if they do, 
They don't come back from the dead. Why? Because Peter lives in a time when salvation is defined as the separation of the body from the soul. In Peter's day, it was taught that the flesh is evil. So if Messiah was Messiah, why would he want to come back with more flesh? See, in his mind, flesh are like cats. They're all evil. Okay? No matter what kind of flesh you have, flesh is flesh. Now, I just wanted you to know that I really don't believe all cats are evil, just those that are breathing. And so, <laughs> and so Peter's having a difficult time, and Jesus has to break not only the illusion that Messiahs don't die, he's also got to break the illusion that the resurrection is just spiritual. It's actually a new body. And so that's why Jesus has to appear to over 500 people. I mean, if, if you're going to rise from the dead and you want people to know what our bodies are going to be like in the new kingdom to come, Jesus' body then becomes a type of prototype for us to look at and say, okay, I was wondering what I'm going to be like when I get to heaven. Let's look at Jesus' body. The Apostle Paul uses that exact argument in 1 Corinthians 15. So you're supposed to look at Jesus' body and notice a couple of things. Number one, he's not subject to physics. He's here one moment and boom, he's over here the next. He goes through walls. It's a new body. It's a glorified body, not subject to physics, pain, suffering, any of that. In John 21, we read that Jesus in his resurrected body does what? He eats, not because he has to, but for the sheer pleasure of it. So that you'll eat all the chocolate you want and drink all the coffee you want, and it'll have no impact. That's what I call heaven. <laughs> now, I know it goes far deeper than that, and we're just meandering a little bit, but the reality is Jesus is trying to kill two illusions. One, the illusion that Messiah doesn't die, and two, that somehow real life stops at the grave. Jesus is trying to kill both illusions. Now, stay with me. Here's the thing about illusions. All of us have them, and an illusion is a way that we see reality that is just not accurate, but it impacts us greatly, man. It, it detracts so much from the joy of our lives and living. What Jesus has to do in all those areas where illusions exist is bring about disillusionment. Disillusionment just simply means the death of illusion. So that an illusion dies. Something that you thought was always right is now dead. And that always brings sadness because you thought you knew something. You thought you knew a person. Then you discover something new. It brings sadness. But that is the only way he can bring in the next phase, which is hope. Hope and a correct understanding of how reality has been shaped by God. Now stay with me. When an illusion is shattered and becomes a disillusion, hope comes in. And with hope comes an enormous amount of freedom because suddenly you see the world as God sees it. Let me give you a humorous example, then move on to the application. You with me? Here's the humorous, Dane Johnson, over here, big strong guy. He does not like earthquakes. Now you say, well, who does? No, you don't understand. This guy is terrified of earthquakes. I've been in three earthquakes with him. Isn't that uncanny how every time we've had an earthquake, I've been with Dane? And it's not just because of his earth-shattering personality either. And every time he's done this, it's an earthquake! Now, I am in no way suggesting that Dane Johnson is not a brave man. As a matter of fact, he's probably the bravest man I know. Let me give you a couple examples. We were walking back from In-N-Out over to our offices that used to be on Grand, and it was late at night, and we walked by this fountain on our way over to an elders meeting, and there was this husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. We're not sure what their relationship was, but he was yelling at her. And it felt, the tension was, it felt violent. So Dane saw that. So Dane just walks right in the middle of them, right in the middle of them, and looks over to her and says, 
is everything all right here? I mean, you just don't do that, right? And he kind of looked at the guy as if to say, I'm going to be right over there. You lay a hand on her. I will come over here. That's the Dane Johnson I know. Do you know that Dane Johnson's been shot at? Do you know that? He walked in on the robbery at a Wienerschnitzel. <laughs> the, the robbers had the manager in the back room. Dane saw what was going on. They shot at him. And do you know what Dane did? He ran, but not the other way. He ran toward the guns. Who does that? I mean, if I get shot, I'm going to run, but I'm going to run away from the trouble. They went out the back door. I think they must have had some of the money, and they had parked a getaway car on the other side of the wall at a service station. What does Dane do? He follows them. They shoot again at him. He's still chasing them. I mean, they shot through the back window of the car. It just blew out because of the gunfire. He's still chasing. The cops got him to go to court and identify these two thugs, right? He goes to court. He's given testimony. And the lawyer for the defense comes up and says, Mr. Johnson, are you telling us that you got close enough to identify these guys? Yes. Are you telling us that when they shot at you, you ran toward them? And Dane says, yes. And he said, why would you do that? True story, Dane said, well, I'm from Oklahoma. <laughs> and, and the lawyer said, the lawyer said, really? And they said, well, I'm from Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, we don't take too kindly to people shooting at us. Now, that's a brave man right there. So let's make sure we understand. But, but there's an illusion in his life, and I'm, I'm not sure how to put my finger on it, but for some reason, Dane thinks he's going to die during an earthquake. Now, you say, well, wait a minute, he could. Well, if you think about it, the chances are really in your favor at this point. So when we're around other people, like we'll have one of our elders, John Brainerd or Anthony McMahon, another friend of mine, they were there and present, so they saw what Dane did. They just kind of sit there and cross their legs and wait till it's over. So does everybody else. The last one was in Buffalo Wild Wings. We were getting ready to watch one of the NCAA games, and the earthquake came. Did you feel it? We felt it. Everybody's just sitting there. Dane, he stands up. It's an earthquake, and he puts his hands over me. It's an earthquake. <laughs> now, that's a true friend right there, isn't it? That's a true friend. Maybe I'm happy about the illusion, but here's the point. Here's the point. He's not going to die. God spends your entire life trying to kill the illusions that are robbing you from the life he came to bring you. The illusion that you think if you have more money, you'll have more security. You won't. You'll always need more. The illusion that you think if you get your promotion at work that you'll be significant, that you'll be impo important, but it'll never be enough. You climb one rung of the ladder in the corporate setting, you've got to climb another one. Some of you think that you'd be happy if you were just married, and that's only because you've never been married before. <laughs> when you get married, you're going to get a whole heap another list of troubles that you never thought existed. Now, it's good. Married life is great. But there's always the elusive dream that we feel like if we can move from here to there, our life would be fine. And I'm telling you that God spends your entire life trying to kill the illusions in your life in order that you can see reality as it truly is. Before he can do that in you, he's got to start at the foundation point. Now, this is the crux of the matter. This is the climactic point of the message, and I need your attention just for these few minutes, okay? There's so many illusions that you have that you destroy yourself with. 
Some of you think that you've got to have the approval of other people. Some of you think you're just dying for somebody to tell you that you're handsome or you're pretty. You're just dying for somebody to notice you. All those things you think are going to fulfill you. Before God can work on those, he's got to work on the two fundamental issues of your life. In Jesus' day, it was that messiahs don't die and that life ends at the grave. Jesus came along and he did something pretty unique. He showed them that Messiah had to die because you and I are sinners separated from God. Messiah had to give his life so that you and I could go free. And when he rose from the dead, he reminded all of us of a truth we already know, that there is something beyond life goes to death, but death is not the end. It's simply the gateway into what is to come. But before you go that far, two illusions, Jesus is going to break in your life. And those of you who've heard this one before, this is the segment of the message in which you start praying for those who have not yet had their eyes open to this illusion. And the illusion is this, that somehow you can be good enough to get to heaven. Until you come to the conclusion, until God breaks that illusion down that you could never be good enough, you'll not humble yourself, you'll not call on his name, and you will not experience God the way he's meant to be experienced. You'll never know him the way he seeks to be known. We use this graph at our church a lot, and we ask people, what makes you think that you're right with God and that you're going to be escorted into eternity, into heaven, through the power of Jesus? And people will say, well, because I'm good. And I'll ask them, how good are you? And without fail, people write their name somewhere above the 50% mark. You know why, right? Because most people believe as long as I have more good than bad, God has to accept me, right? When they do that, I like to remind them that Billy Graham was asked this question, and he put his name around the 33% mark. I love to see the look on their face when they erase their name and put it just underneath Billy Graham's, <laughs> just underneath. And then I'll remind them that Mother Teresa put her name around 23%, and then I watch them nervously scratch out their name and put it just underneath, so close to Mother Teresa it's touching. And there's a part of me that wants to say, dude, really? Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, then you? But it's because they're nervous. They're getting too close to the line. They think... They think the more good you have, and as long as it's more good than bad, God has to accept you. You know the problem with that? Number one, we are incredibly gifted at overestimating our own goodness. And two, incredibly gifted at severely underestimating God's holiness. Do you know the Bible says, and people ask me, Pastor Jeff, I, you know, I get this Christian thing, but really, the blood, guts, and gore of a cross, why, do, why doesn't God just say, okay, you tried hard, come on up. Why the cross, man? Why, why the blood sacrifice? It's so gross. You know, why is this part of the, uh, the central part of, of Christianity? And the, the reason is simple. God's trying to kill that illusion that somehow you can be good enough he communicates that he is a holy and pure and righteous God. And you would expect God to be that way, right? If he's God, he shouldn't struggle with sin. God is holy and pure and righteous, and that requires him to separate himself from sin. But he's also loving and gracious and merciful, and he wants to forgive you and me. Because we're all sinners, man, all of us, you, me, everybody on this day, everybody. We are all. And if you haven't come to that terms with that, that's another illusion. Really? You're not a sinner? You violate your own moral law. You know you do, much less God's moral law. But God wants to forgive us. But he can't remain true to one side of his nature while violating the other. And so 
It's brilliant in the mind of God as he sends his son Jesus, the Messiah, but the Messiah must die. Why? He must die so the requirements of God's holiness have been met in that your sin and mine has been punished, but the requirements of his love and grace have been met in the sense that he sent his son to die on the cross for us so that you and I can go free. That he turned his back on his own son so he wouldn't have to turn his back on us. That he had his own heart broken so that our heart would remain whole. That's why Jesus, the very first words on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit means humble. Blessed are those who come to a point in their lives when they realize, I can never be good enough to be accepted by God. See, our problem is we think God grades on a curve. You think you're going to get in line on judgment day behind uh, Hitler and Stalin. And you're going to look really good, but what happens if you get in line behind Billy Graham and Mother Teresa? You're not going to look so good. God doesn't grade on a curve. You're either 100% holy or you're separated from God, and no man or woman can be 100% pure. And so Jesus comes and shatters the illusion. And here's the thing. Once that, listen closely now. Some of you are in the room, you're thinking, well, I know some Christians, but man, I don't see a lot of change in their life. Let me tell you why, okay? Because a lot of people call themselves Christ followers, but have never had the illusion shattered of a work salvation. See, because once the illusion is shattered and you realize God accepts you on the basis of what Jesus did, not on how good you are, guess what the automatic result of that is? You give grace and mercy to other people. But until you have that illusion shattered, you're going to be grumpy, you're going to be vindictive, you're going to have vengeance and revenge. Those things are going to dominate you. And you're always going to have this sense that the world owes you something that it hasn't given you, and you're going to go through life with bitterness and anger and rage. But when Jesus shatters the illusion that he receives you on the basis of what Jesus did for you on the cross, when that illusion is shattered, others begin to be shattered, and you begin to give grace and mercy to those around you who need it so desperately. That's the first one. There's a second one. It's a little end. You, you, you still with me? All right, here's the second one. The resurrection of Jesus is really cool, but it has no impact on my life. And I want to talk about that and then end. There are many people here that believe the resurrection. They think, yeah, I believe it happened. I'm not really sure. But you know, there's a lot of historical evidence here, and I, I think I can swallow this. Yeah, I think Jesus rose from the dead, but it makes no difference in your life. It changes everything. Everything. It changes the way you look at death now. It changes the way you look at your own pain and suffering. You look at the cross and you recognize that it's possible to be in the worst possible position of your life and still be in the middle of God's will. You look at pain differently now. You, you look at the realization that no matter how bad life is, God can take something out of that and bring beauty and pattern and design into it. No matter how dark it seems, no matter how lost you are, no matter where you've been, this is a God with resurrection power that can take the most dire situation and breathe new life into it so that you're unexpectedly expecting something dramatic to come out of the tomb, to come out of death, to come out of pain, to come out of suffering. And only Jesus offers that to you. If you know the one, listen, if you know the one who holds the keys to life and death, what are you afraid of? What am I really afraid of? What, you're going to kill me? Then real life begins. You know what? You know when we take flowers and we place them, we talked about this in our Good Friday service that we changed to Great Friday. 
We talked about how there's a tradition that started with the Greco-Roman world, and they would put flowers on the graves of people who had died because they believed the spirits of those people, their friends, their family, would dance on the graves and would party during the night. So they wanted them to party in a good garden, okay? The Jewish people have a tradition of not placing flowers. The Europeans had a tradition of flowers. Christians came along, kind of hijacked the idea. Do you know why we put flowers on graves today? At least, at least the tradition of our culture it started because we believe that there is another garden. That when you die, it's not the end of life, but the beginning. And there is paradise regained and restored. And the garden that we were meant to live in from the beginning until sin came in and impacted our world is the garden to which we will return, where God will be our God and we will be his people and he will meet the desires of our heart. Death, folks, isn't... <laughs> It's not the end. And you know it. You know it in your heart. You know that death is not the end. There's something that stirs in you that wonders what happens after the funeral. And Jesus came to show you, here's what happens. There will be life, and life is found in the blood, the sacrifice, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, I read a story about a little boy named Philip who was born with Down syndrome. True story. His uh, third grade class did not really accept him that well. You know, you never, you never really accept someone you don't understand, at least completely or fully. So he had a hard time in class. But he had a brilliant teacher who was somewhat creative. And one spring day, she gave all of her students in her class one of those eggs that holds pantyhose women. You know, your pantyhose comes in those little egg-shaped things. And so... She asked each student to take one of those eggs and to go out on a, on a fresh spring day into the schoolyard and collect something in their egg that would represent new life. And so they all went out. It was total chaos. And the idea was for them to all come back in now and one by one, show and tell. Open up and let the class discover what they had collected. Some kids collected things like uh, flowers. Others maybe leaves. One guy even collected a butterfly. And then they came to one that they opened, and it was totally empty. And the class, boo, hiss, you know, who is this? And of course, little Philip raises his hand and says, it's mine. And they say, Philip, that's just like you. You never know what to, you never do it right. To which he responded, oh, yes, I did. It's empty, just like the tomb. And at that point, the teacher writes how Philip became a full-fledged member of the class. And the story goes on to say how he died a few months later. And all the little children came to his funeral. They all demanded to come, which is rare in that age group. But rather than walk up to the casket with flowers, each of them came with an empty pantyhose egg to lay on the casket signifying new life. The illusion that has to die in all of us is that we're good enough to earn favor with God, that we didn't need a Messiah who would die on a cross. And the second illusion, the illusion that good things cannot come out of death. Somebody said it like this, any losses we experience or graves of dead dreams we endure, we stand equally aware that we will be mercifully startled by what emerges from the tomb. Do you see that? Do you, do you get what the resurrection does for all of you in this room? All of you have blown it to some degree. I'll bet you there are people in right here right now that would not want us to know what they just did last night 
or last week. I'll bet you there are people in here that, that would not want all of us to know what they think, what they watch, what they look at, what they've been engaged in. Do you understand that no matter how deep no matter how down deep in the dungeon you've crawled, no matter how, where you've gone, no matter how hopeless you feel, it is the resurrection power of Jesus that says, come on up out of there, I'm going to breathe new life into you, and it's going to be like nothing bad ever happened. And it's only, it's only Jesus that does that. We may be down in times of our life, but we're never out. We may be losing a battle, we'll never lose the war. We might be trapped in darkness of the tomb, but somebody's about to throw the stone away. We may be laid out on the cold concrete slab of the tomb, but somebody's about to bring warm rays of sunshine in. We may be wrapped up in death, but death has lost its sting. The tomb is empty. It might be Friday now, but Sunday's coming. The resurrection changes everything. Listen, I, I read a story this past, almost done, I read a story this past week of a Muslim in Pakistan who converted to Christ by one of our military. And his friends asked him, why did you do that? Why would you ever do that? And here was his answer. Okay, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. If you came to a fork in the road and you did not know which path to take, and there in the fork of the road were two men, one dead, one alive, which one would you ask for directions? See, Jesus didn't say, come follow me and I'll show you a way. I'll show you a truth. I'll show you a life. He said, no, no, no. I am the way. I am the truth. If you want to know what happens after death, ask the one who's been there, done that, and come back to tell the rest of us about it. Ask him. Ask him. Jesus is alive, and because he conquered death, all who call on his name will do the same. Now, I often tell the story about uh, a guy named Lynn Kiker. Uh, he was a bully on my neighborhood street. I was a paper boy with my little red rider bicycle in my baskets, and I would go down the houses just firing these papers, but on Fridays I had to get off my bicycle, go up to the door and say the words, collect. And that's when you collected money for delivering the papers and you hope you got a good tip. There was one boy in my neighborhood, mean, big bully, four years older than me, bigger than me, and every time I went to the door, he would curse at me, throw things at me, and just try to intimidate me, which usually it worked. I don't know where he is now, probably Leavenworth or somewhere like that, but... I told my big brother about it, and my big brother said, I'll go with you, and I'll stand behind the telephone pole, and when he comes out to the door, I'll be there to protect you. So I just got a renewed sense of vitality, knowing that my big brother was behind me. So I walked up to the door on this Friday, and I'd just been planning this all day at school, and I said, collect. Lynn Cocker came to the door without hesitation, boom, and I ran as fast as I could. It felt so good, just because I knew that if he chased me, my brother would come out and protect me right? That's called being a chicken. <laughs> it felt good to hit him. I just want to confess. It felt like I was doing it in the name of Jesus and everything that is pure for the sake of all future pastors. He did chase me and my big brother was there. I tell you that story Because there's been somebody that has come and delivered a death punch to your sins. And they're never going to get back up again, as far as the east is from the west. There's somebody, there's somebody that has come and delivered a death punch to death, and death can no longer affect you. It's just new life now. 
Somewhere along the line, Peter finally understood the illusion had been destroyed. He now knew, man, I was at a point in my life where I, I just believed messiahs don't die, and now I'm glad that he died. I'm glad that he, I get it now. And so everybody leaves the coffee shops, and they come out in the streets, leave work early, and Peter stands up, and he starts to preach, and he, he's getting louder and louder. And he describes how Messiah had to die so that we could go free. And then everybody around is so convicted, they say, well, what do we got to do? What do we do then? If the Messiah died so that we could be saved, if we could be forgiven of our sins and come into community with God, what do we do? Peter said, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to repent. Stop believing that you can be good enough to be accepted by God. Stop doing that. Repent and be baptized. Die to your old way. Be resurrected to your new and the Bible says in the book of Acts that 3,000 were added to the church that day. If the res listen, this is the end. If the resurrection is true, everything Jesus said about himself is true. Everything Jesus said about you and me, it's true. Everything Jesus said about life and death and resurrection is true. Everything Jesus said about heaven is true. It's all true. Man, when you come back from the dead, you got authority, and you can say whatever you want. And Jesus says, I'm the one that will escort you into eternity. And the question is this. The question is this. You know, the Greek Orthodox Church, they celebrate Easter differently than we do. They have a tradition. They spend the day telling jokes. Sounds like my kind of holiday. Here's why. In their mind, they are imitating the cosmic joke that God played on Satan. Satan thought he had won. And he had this smirky grin on his face that now sin and death would rule the world, and he had defeated us, and he had defeated God's plan, he had defeated the Messiah. But then all of a sudden, 10, 9, 8, the stone starts to rattle, 7, 6, the earth shatters, 6, 5, 4, the stone is rolled away, 3, Jesus resurrects from the dead, and ultimately, God had the last word. And the question is, the question is, will he have the last word in your life? And the answer is yes. Oh, yeah, he'll have the last word. It'll be one of two words. One of two words that you're going to hear as the last words on this planet Earth. One will be this, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your joy and rest. But there's another phrase, depart from me. I never knew you. And if you'll notice, the people Jesus says that to in the gospel are the people that claim to do all these good works in his name. Interesting, isn't it? The gospel is about you humbling yourself and admitting no matter how much good you do, God is so holy, you need a Savior. Amen? Amen. Father, I just want to thank you and praise you for your goodness. I, I thank you that you open up our eyes to the illusions that have the potential to destroy us. I pray for every individual in the room right now. If there's anyone here in this place that still lives under the illusion that they don't need Jesus, they're good enough, they don't need a Savior, that that would be broken down and you'd give them courage to make a change that new life might come in. That an illusion would die and become a disillusion and then hope would come in. It would emerge and change everything. I pray for those who've had the illusion that life stops at death, I pray that they would be reminded because of what Jesus has done, 
Death is only the beginning of new life. It is simply the doorway into what is yet to come. That there is a faraway land, that there is a faraway country that we know exists, that we're all trying to get there. And the only way to get there is through the bridge of Jesus Christ who has bridged the gap between us and God, a holy God and impure people, saved by grace and mercy to live in eternity with God forevermore. We thank you. We praise you, Holy Spirit. We pray you descend on this place in Jesus' name. Amen.